Turn to Acts chapter 18. We're going to look just at a few verses. In Acts 18, Paul is, has just left Athens and arrived in Corinth. And we read a short summary of what he did in the city of Corinth. And there are two groups of people that we are warned against in this passage. We're going to be starting in verse 4 and reading through verse 7. Excuse me. There's two groups of people that we're warned against. So-called brothers, those who make a claim to godliness, who are engaged in immorality, and those who make no claim to godliness and actively oppose God. So in our text this morning, we will see Paul responding to the Jews who resisted the good news of Jesus, who died to pay the penalty for sins, and who then blasphemed. And Paul responding, responding exactly the way that Jesus commanded his disciples to respond. And by the time I'm done this morning, I want each of us to understand why Paul responded so strongly, because it's a bit of a shock to your system if you're not expecting it. But I want us to understand why he responded so strongly, as well as how we should respond to the various situations where people are opposing God, either by their words or by their actions. So please stand for the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 18, verses 4 through 7. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, to start with, I want us all to understand the context of Paul's actions. Let's look at a few other texts to see the scriptural support for what Paul does here. Turn first to Ezekiel chapter 33. I'm going to read a few verses from Ezekiel as well. In verses 7 through 9, Ezekiel 33, 7 through 9. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman... For the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. 
But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. So Paul obviously considers himself to be in a similar circumstance to Ezekiel. It's only by fulfilling God's command to speak that he is able to be free from guilt for their blood as they remain in their unbelief. The Jews knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew that what he was going to do. They knew the acts that he was going to do. And when he came, as Peter says to them, they put him to death by the hands of ungodly men, unrighteous men, right? And so now Paul is going out and he's preaching to them. And he's preaching calling them to believe in Jesus Christ. It's fairly simple. They're they're already gathered to worship God, right? And all he's saying is, here is the Messiah that God sent. And yet, what do they do? They reject, and ultimately, they even blaspheme. And so Paul, at that point, says that he is free from their blood. Their blood is on their own hands. It's only by his speaking to them and warning them that he is free from being guilty of their blood. Because he warned them, because he told them, like Ezekiel, he has fulfilled what is required of him. And he says, now I'll go to the Gentiles. I'll tell them the good news. Now, Paul has a specific calling, right? He is an apostle. And so in a sense, Paul is different from us, right? We are not all called to be apostles. And yet, the question that remains is, is it possible for us to have blood on our hands by not warning people? And of course, the answer to that is yes. Despite having a different calling from Paul, despite not being an apostle, it is still possible for us to refuse to speak and therefore to have blood on our hands. Because we are all called to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us, correct? And so if we are not ready and if we will not give an account, if we will not call people to repentance, when we know that we should, and we have blood on our hands. Now, in in the last week, a couple of things have happened. Normally, I've been preaching through the book of John. Um, But I decided to take a break and come here to this passage in Acts for a couple of reasons. One is because I had a conversation with a man who rejected God. He had grown up in the church, the Baptist, become a chaplain. He, he, knew what he, was, he knew what he was talking about in, in terms of the Bible and so forth. And then he had, he had rejected God. Now... The Jews, in our passage, have rejected God, haven't they? 
They've rejected God. They're there, gathered in the synagogue to worship their heavenly Father, God, the creator of the universe, and they have rejected him. And after Paul warns them, they continue week after week to gather in the synagogue in God's name to worship him, and yet they've blasphemed. And so the question is, are they worshiping God? Are they worshiping God? The answer is no. Now, you will have you will have conversations with people who claim to be worshipers of God, claim to be lovers of God, who have denied the faith, who have rejected Christ as their Savior, and who are not worshiping God, whatever they may say. You will have these conversations, okay? And it's important for you to understand what to do in these circumstances, right? Because if I just got done saying that Paul frees himself from guilt through his proclamation to them, right? And then said that it's possible for us to be guilty by not speaking when we ought, we want to know what's required of us, right? We want to know what's required of us because we don't want to have blood on our hands, In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach. And listen to what he says to them. He says, Whatever village or whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So, Paul, here in our passage, what does he do? When they resisted, verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. He shook out his garments. You see how he's doing exactly what Jesus said? Shake the dust off your feet if they reject what you have to say. If they reject the message that I gave you, shake the dust off your feet, and truly it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Paul is fulfilling Jesus' command about how to do the work of preaching the gospel. And once he does shake the dust off when dealing with a group of people, it becomes even more serious for those people. Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So there's, there's a warning here given by our Lord Jesus 
to us in whether we sh- in what's required of us. Okay. On the one hand, you have in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, you have him saying, "If you don't speak and they don't repent, blood is on you." And on the other hand, you have Jesus saying, "But if they won't listen, shake the dust off your feet and." Don't throw your pearls before swine, or else they will turn and tear you to pieces. So there's this, you see this this continuum, right? On the one hand, you have to speak, and then you have to stop speaking, right? Now, is, is is that a shock to you? Is the thought maybe that you have to speak a shock? For some people, that's the shocking part. For other people, the shocking part is that you have to stop at some point. Do you understand? And we better understand both of those things, or we will be disobeying Jesus Christ. He sends them out to preach, and he says, go in, give it your blessing, If they refuse, if they're not worthy, if they will not hear, take your blessing back and leave and shake the dust off your feet. Now, we got, uh, early in the service, we we read, what, what chapter was it? Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, you see this command of God for them to fight with, for the Israelites to fight with the Amalekites, right? And it ends with this, this statement that God, from generation to generation, will fight against, will be opposed to the Amalekites. And you read through the rest of Exodus, you read through the rest of uh, the, the story of the Israelites coming into the Promised Land, and you read, about their, you read about their destruction of their enemies in various places, right? And if you... If you have any sense of paying attention to what you're reading, it's, it's pretty brutal, right? As a matter of fact, um, it, can be, it can be a stumbling block to people hearing about God, who they've always heard is a loving God, saying, wipe them out, kill every one of them. You see, that's, is that loving? Is that loving? The answer is yes, God is love, and yet God also has wrath and anger against sin and against the wicked every day, right? And so the temptation that we face is to look at, look at these kinds of commands where you're, you're required to speak and then you're required to stop and to judge one side or the other. And, and all that does is it ends up remaking God in our own image. It ends up creating for ourselves a God according to whatever character we would like him to have rather than his own character. We think that we are the judge of what is loving. We think that we are the judge of what is 
good. We think that we are the ultimate authority on whether and when hate should be poured out. And on what, right? And, and typically, of course, the only time that anybody should ever hate is when we are irritated. You see how it's making God in our own image, right? All of a sudden, you're like, no, that's an injustice. They shouldn't have done that to me. And then all of a sudden, there's such a thing as righteous fury and indignation. But no, God is the judge. God is the measure of holy. God is the measure of love. And he is the measure of hatred of sin. Right? And so when he says, you must speak, then you must speak. And it's not, it's not too great a burden. It is not too high an expectation on you. And when he says, now be silent, it is not a lack of love on his part. The Jews are left with no more warning by Paul. And their blood is on their own heads. So how do we bring this to bear on our own lives? Well, the first question is probably the most uh, applicable, okay? The most common instance where you're going to have to figure out what to do is when people claim to be followers of God, but don't believe in Jesus. People who claim to be followers of God, and that can take various forms, right? Like, I try, you know, yes, I believe there's a God, and yes, I try to do, you know, I try to do good things. That's, that's one. That's like somebody who, who really probably doesn't have any concept or clue of what the gospel is. And on the other hand, you have this man that I was speaking with who grew up in the church and now said that the Bible, you know, is written by men and there's, there's bound to be mistakes in there. And who said that he could not accept any God that would send anybody to hell. And he could not accept that Jesus had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. You see, this is, this is a totally different kind of... And yet he claimed still to, to be a follower and lover of God and of all that is good and wise and true. You see, that's a totally different thing. There's this spectrum that you have of people who claim to be followers of God, right? And yet who do not believe in the Son of God, who have, do not have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And over here where you've got these people who are just clueless, they need to be told. They need to hear the good news. They need to be called to repentance. But this man who has rejected the faith, 
He's in his own, he's in his, he's in his own sin, right? And he's heard, he knows, he can actually say ahead of me what I'm about to say to him. And I finally came to understand the passage that says that there are people who he says not to pray for. You guys remember that? I don't say to pray for there is a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. And his sin has led him to death. And so how did I respond? Well, I responded exactly wrong. I I sinned in my interactions with this man this week because I was unwilling to say what needed to be said because I was embarrassed. I said lots of things that needed to be said. I had even, I had even gone so far as to, he, when he claimed that we worshipped the same God, to deny it and say we worshipped different gods. And yet then at the very end of the conversation, he said, well, let me pray for you. Now, at that moment, that is where the rubber meets the road. Do you see that? When a man who believes the things I just got done describing and who I have already explained to him does not worship the same God as me, then says that he wants to pray for me and with me, right? What am I supposed to do? I am supposed to shake the dust off my feet. That's what I'm supposed to do. And take back my blessing. You know, you start a conversation with somebody, you don't know them, and you're polite. You're giving them blessing, right? But then when it ends, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to do it. And you know why I didn't want to do it, right? Would you have wanted to do it? No, we don't like it. It's not polite. Now, some of you are maybe just angry people and love to have an opportunity to, to yell and say, curse you, just looking for an outlet that you can say is righteous. But that's not me. You know? I would, I'd rather maintain some level of decorum and, and gentlemanliness and, and sin. And that's what it was. It was a sin. And so how should we respond when people who claim to be followers of God don't believe in Jesus? Well, there's, a whole, there's this whole realm, there's this whole spectrum, there's this whole continuum of responses. And the goal is what Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them out. You know, the goal is that they would hear and that they would repent. And that then if they do not repent, if they refuse that at some point there is a washing of your hands, there is a shaking of the dust off your feet, there is a leaving them to their own devices. Right? 
leaving them to their own devices. Hebrews 10, 28 through 31 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of God? the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so there there is something that is so important about this warning that Paul gives, your blood be on your own heads. Now what about people who do, not, who, who, who do claim the name of Jesus? There's, there's this group of people who do claim the name of Jesus, right? And yet who live in an immoral way. I'm reading a lot of scripture passages this morning. I want to read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I... On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has, committed, has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." So what does Paul say? What does God say through Paul? He gives us an example. Here is a man who is a follower of Jesus Christ, not just a, someone who claims to be a, you know, someone who worships God, but somebody who actually has put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then what? Then has begun living in an immoral way. And Paul says, we deliver them over to Satan so that their flesh may be destroyed, but that their soul may be saved. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 18 He says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So what is the importance of handing them over to Satan? 
so that they will be taught not to blaspheme, so that their bodies may be destroyed, but that their souls may be saved. This may well be the final warning that saves them. You see, the, the shaking off of the dust from your feet, your blood be on your own head. That is for those who reject Jesus Christ. But then there are those who, who desire to live by faith in Jesus Christ. And they've suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. They are to be handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You guys have interactions with people all the time. Some of you have more interactions with strangers. Some of you have more interactions with friends. Some of you know your neighbors better. But the reality is you have conversations. You have ongoing opportunity to evaluate what it is that you should say to people. And you have to be able to understand what the different categories of people are. You have to be able to understand what you're supposed to say differently to different people. Then there's this group of people who don't claim to be followers of God at all. Right? And that's the group where we're all like, oh, well, I can't have anything to do with them. They're, they do all kinds of wicked things. And yet, what, what we read from Paul is, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the, with the immoral people of this world, but with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. Or, sorry, I, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So again, distinguishing between types of people and then what you're supposed to be doing with them. Those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ but who are living an immoral life and you know it, and they're covetous and idolaters and so forth, they're living in outward sin, you're not even supposed to eat with them. But Paul has just gotten done with saying them, but I didn't mean those who do those things who don't even claim to be followers of God. That wasn't my point. So what are you supposed to say to them? Well, in Acts 18, he says to the Jews when they resisted and blasphemed, he shakes out his garments and he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What is it to go to the Gentiles? It's to say, I am going to go to those who do not even claim to be followers of God, and I am going to proclaim the good news to them. 
There's one last category of people. And this is a strange category, but I think it's important for us to notice. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, again, the Apostle Paul writes, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And then he gives a warning elsewhere, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. This last category of people is people that you're supposed to not associate with so that they will be put to shame, yet you're supposed to not regard them as an enemy but as a brother. In other words, there are people who, through their sin are causing problems for themselves and for the body of Christ and who we are to take special note of. Take special note of people who live in this way. They don't obey the instructions in this letter and then don't associate with them. Now we want to be innocent of the blood of all men, as Paul says, right? You do not want to have blood guilt on your hands. And this is the other thing that, um, that's happened this week that, that has given me a lot of thought on this topic. The question of how Christians are to respond to the, the wickedness, the overflow of blood guilt in our nation because of abortion is a big question, right? What are Christians to do about it? And so now I want to walk back through this, thinking about these categories, all right, and answer that question. Are there people who claim to be good people, who claim to worship God, who have abortions and participate in abortion? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what are you supposed to do with them? Well, it depends, right? depends on whether they're those who have no real knowledge aside from that there is a God. This is what the rest of the Gentiles in, in Corinth, Paul would have been going to. Or whether they're those who know the gospel and who are giving themselves to the sin. Regardless, they need to be called to repentance. But if then they blaspheme, if then they say that they're actually doing good through their wickedness, you are to shake the dust off your feet and have nothing to do with them. Then there are those who
are indeed people who have faith in Jesus Christ who give themselves to murder. And, and don't be shocked at that. Don't be surprised at that thought. Because there is no sin that has befallen us but what is common to man. It's no more surprising that, that somebody of faith could fall into sin in this area than it is that they would fall into sexual immorality or that they would fall into the sin of covetousness or idolatry, right? We know ourselves. We know what kinds of temptations face us. We know the pressures. And so, what do we do? Well, we call them to repentance, right? And then they either will repent or they will harden and suffer shipwreck in their faith. You see this? And this is really so very, very helpful in thinking about how we're to interact with people because abortion is only one sin that we struggle with and that is, and that is causing disaster in our nation, right? Sexual immorality leads up to it the vast majority of the time, and that starts way, way, way earlier in the timeline. We need to be willing to call people to repentance regardless of what sins they've fallen into. Now, if you, if you think about these categories and you think, you know, this is all kind of a little bit confusing. You've got four categories of people. Got, got, how am I supposed to make these kinds of evaluations? And, and when, and how do, you know, why, am, and, and, and is it really necessary? The answer is, yeah, it, you know, it is a little bit, it is a little bit confusing sometimes, and no, you won't always know what category of person you're dealing with, and sometimes it will become clear to you, and I think that's the, that's the point here is that it becomes clear to Paul what's going on, and then he takes action accordingly. And it became clear to me in my conversation with this person, and then I should have taken action accordingly. Right? And how many times is that true for you? That you're interacting with somebody and you realize where they stand in, the, in regard to God. You realize where they stand in regard to Jesus Christ. And then what? Do you take action accordingly? That's what you have to do. That's what you have to be willing to do.
2 Timothy 4.2. Timothy is exhorted by the Apostle Paul. He says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And you say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. That applies to you, Pastor Joseph. And I say, yeah, it, you're right. I mean, it is written to pastors, and yet, you all also are required to be ready in season and out of season for the work that you've been called to do, right? And the work that you've been called to do includes these testimonies, calling people. I want you to, I want you to think about the pressures that you face to make nice with other people, okay? The pressures to pretend as though there's no difference, as though there's unity. And, th- and that's exactly the pressure that I faced and gave into this past week, right? Those pressures are very, very real. Is there, is there unity between Protestants and Catholics? There's not. That's a painful thing for, for us to face an awful lot of the time, isn't there? That, that lack of unity is caused because of difference in belief, right? Right? It's caused because when you go to pray, they want to pray to Mary instead of to God. And you say, well, but they're willing to pray to God too. What about that? Right? And I say, okay, well, are you worshiping the same God? Are you worshiping the same God? You actually have to make a decision about whether you're worshiping the same God before you can pray with somebody. You cannot pray along with somebody who's praying to Dagon. You cannot pray along with somebody who is praying to the the golden calf, even if he calls it Yahweh. Right? When Moses came down from the mountain, the people were all dancing around the golden calf, right? And he doesn't say, well, now let's let's pray. No, he grinds it up, doesn't he? And isn't isn't this what the failure of Israel is in the divided kingdom? That Israel doesn't ever grind up the calves, that were set up for them to worship. Here is Yahweh. Here is your God. And so often when, when people say, well, you know, I believe in God too, 
We just want to make nice. Not cause a scene. Not be uncomfortable. And what does it look like when they say, well, I believe in God too? Well, it can take all different kinds of forms. And I can't begin to describe all of those forms to you, right? It's like, you, you, you know, your neighbor uh, or your coworker saying, you know, what are the kinds of things that they'll say? You know, like, well wishes your way on Facebook, right? You know, please pray for me. Uh, you know, deep thoughts of hopefulness to you. Now, this is, this is at least honest, right? They're saying, well, I won't pray for you because I don't believe in God. But, you know, I'll, like, send cosmic good rays towards you if I can somehow manage to create them by my feelings and my desires. Like, I desire good for you. It's like, well, you can say thank you for that, right? You can say thank you when people desire good things for you, whether they believe in God or not, right? But where it begins to be ever so much more confrontational, where it begins to be ever so much more uncomfortable, is when you have people saying, well, I'll, you know, I'll say a prayer to the, to the, now this is, this is less common, right? But you will have people, if you, <laughs> if you're one of these people who will do stuff like make a, make widely public a, a need for, for help, okay? And some of us just try to keep that all quiet and, and silent and secret so nobody ever knows we need help. But some of us love to broadcast our needs to the whole wide world. Okay? So if you're one of those people, you will have at some point somebody say, well, you know, I'll say a prayer to Saint such and such for you. Or, well, I'll say a prayer to, uh, uh, you know, and, and you can fill in whatever superstition you want here. You may even say, you may even hear them say that they'll meditate for you. They'll take some other religion and they'll, they'll fill in what they do in their religion to try to, to, try to help you. Okay? Now what are you supposed to do? Well, I mean... If that's a Facebook comment, I'd just ignore it if I were you. I'd stop spending so much time on Facebook and stop broadcasting your needs so widely. But that's beside the point. You know, when you're, it, it, you know, the more personal it is, my point is the, the more, the, the, the closer to like, you know, it can be all the way up to you're sitting one-on-one with somebody and they say, well, can I pray for you? And that's what I faced this week, right? And he worships another god. In fact, you know, it was he, he. He believes in hopeful inclusion. That I mean, that's the the ultimate hope. And and I, there's nothing left there but like his random feelings of hope and desire. It's exactly the same thing. It doesn't matter what he calls his God. Do you guys see the? Do you guys feel that pressure? <laughs> Have you ever been in that circumstance? It's awful, isn't it? 
People who want to who want to demand that you're united with them. And they have all kinds of sneaky ways of doing it. They may have started off the conversation by talking about how hurt they've been by the people who've been mean to them about their beliefs. And then you get to the end of the conversation, you realize what they believe, and and they want to pray for you. What are you going to do? We cannot refuse to obey the words of Jesus Christ. And what he says is, take back your blessing, shake the dust off your feet. What Paul says is, your blood be on your own head. I'll go from now on to the Gentiles. But you guys cannot do that unless you have proclaimed the gospel. Do you understand You simply can't do that. If you have refused to say anything to them and then they want to pray and then they want to pray with you, what are you gonna say? No, sorry, I only pray after four o'clock and before nine. If you have never bothered to warn them, you cannot shake the dust off your feet. Do you understand? You cannot leave and say your blood be on your own head unless you've told them something. And that is ultimately the hard the hardest part. Because it you you think that the most you think that the most uh, you know conflict-filled part of this is shaking the dust off your feet. You think that the the most controversial part is saying your blood be on your own head. But actually, the most controversial part is saying your sins are so wicked that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, had to die in order that your sins could be forgiven. And that is the love of God. And that's the controversial part. (laughs) Don't be ashamed of that. All kinds of people think that it's their own goodness that gets them there, and therefore they have no need of Jesus Christ. Every other religion in the world, that's what it believes. That they have some way of being good, of getting there on their own. And the gospel is the scent of life to those who are being saved, life to life, but death and destruction to those who reject it. Let's pray.